TGIF, thank God it's Friday. You're probably familiar with that phrase, uh, probably have used it a few times. Nothing wrong with that sentiment. There are times we go through the week, man, and we cannot wait for the weekend. But how often on the day after Sunday have you gotten up in the morning and thought to yourself, TGIM, thank God it's Monday. Any of you waking up tomorrow really excited to go back to work? Not so much, huh? It's interesting. Uh, we don't do that very often. There was one study out that said that 44% of the people surveyed were unhappy with their jobs. Another survey said that uh, 77% of people were dissatisfied with their work and dreaded going to work. That's sad. We're going to talk a little bit about work this morning. We're beginning a new series called The Art of Life, and we're going to take a number of issues that we think we have to do well as believers, as followers of Jesus, to live life well, the art of life. Uh, We thought if we're going to do that, then one of the issues we have to talk about is the issue of work, because it's so important. Uh, Work presents us with all kinds of challenges, uh, partly because we work a lot. Uh, If you do the math, we will spend somewhere around 100,000 hours of our lives working. It's about 40% of our lives. A huge percentage of our awake time is spent at work. And it's a universal challenge. It doesn't matter whether you work in the home or work in an office or work in a factory or work outside or work on the road. Uh, uh, You can't get away from work. It's demanding. It, It in some ways takes over our lives and consumes us. Uh, No matter who we are, we have to work. It's a challenge. What even makes it more difficult, though, is we're not always clear about what the purpose of our work is. Most people think that the purpose of work is simply to make money, and and thus the goal of work is to get through the week so you can enjoy the weekend. It's kind of funny. We work so we don't have to work for the most part, but that's sad. If we can't tie our work to something bigger than ourselves, it, it gets a bit hollow. There was a Harris poll taken of workers and only one in five of the workers said they could tie their daily activity, their daily work to the larger goals or objectives of the company they work for. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't see how it fit. What was even more disturbing, only one in five even cared about what the objectives or the goals of the company they worked for were. They're just there to get a paycheck. And the problem is most people, well, a lot of people simply see work as a necessary evil. I mean, some people think, you know, work is really just a consequence of the fall. If we never would have rebelled against God, then we would have never had to work. Work is just kind of God's punishment on us for our disobedience. It's this evil thing we have to do and we have to endure. And if you want to see how our culture sees work, 
in this kind of evil way. All you have to do is turn on the television. Watch The Office. It's hilarious. But its attitude towards work is disturbing. It's cynical. It's backbiting. It's filled with idiocy. And it's meaningless. That's the culture's view of work. So there's those people who think that work is evil. Then, then there's another group of people, and sometimes this is a challenge we have to guard against, that get consumed by work. They, they see work, well, they make it their idol. It's the source of their identity. It's the source of their security. They, they try to use work to breathe life into themselves, uh, its success and its recognition. They look to work to, to be the great good of their lives. So, so it, it consumes them. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the things you discover is that it's very, very hard to integrate your faith into your work. I mean, work in one sense becomes its own little world, doesn't it? That has its own set of rules and its own set of expectations. And in a sense, when we're at work, we operate in that world and kind of take on the values of that world. And we're not really sure how we take all this stuff, our our spiritual lives and our faith and integrate it into that world. So for the most part, we think our biggest obligation in our work life is to be nice you know, to be moral and to be honest. And if they let us have the opportunity to share our faith with somebody else, and that's kind of the extent of how our faith integrates into our work. But there could be so much more. And the challenge is, is we don't really understand how, to, how our work makes any difference for the kingdom. For a homemaker, for a businessman, for a banker, if we're a plumber, uh, if we're a financial advisor, we're just not sure how, how does that really connect with God's kingdom and his advancement of his agenda in the world. So what we kind of fall back on is because we can't see the connection is we say to ourselves, well, at least I can make some money and I can give money to the advancement of the kingdom. But we really don't see much connection between our work intrinsically and this thing we always talk about the kingdom of of God now it's interesting to me as I've thought about this issue of work this week is that when we look at those challenges I began to realize that part of the reason those challenges exist is because the church us me (laughs) leaders do such a bad job of equipping people to work. I mean, we don't talk about it very often. Even though it's 40% of our lives, we hardly mention it from the pulpit. We, we unintentionally divide life, right? There's the, the spiritual side, ministry side, God side of life. You know, read your Bibles, do ministry, get involved. We talk about that all the time, right? And throw in some moral and character stuff. But, we, 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 but not very often do we talk about work itself. We don't, don't talk about people's vocation or their calling. Or, or, or what that means in terms of actually how they live day to day in their workplace. We've just done a poor job. So I apologize. We, we need to do that much better. Because that's a huge dimension of people's lives, everyone's lives. So what I want to do this morning 
Typically, we take a, a, a passage and go through that passage, explain and apply it to life. But this morning, I want to not do that so much as to rather give you a number of principles that kind of create a, a biblical framework around this notion of work. And we'll use a number of different passages instead of just one to do that. So in a sense, what I'm trying to do is to give you a theology of work, because I'm convinced if we think better about what work is and the nature of work and how it fits in to the scriptural mandate, um, we can be better workers and find a lot more joy in our work. All right. So biblical framework, six things. The first thing we are designed to work. It's interesting. Work is not a result of the fall. Work was part of God's design and plan before the fall ever took place. All right? The first place you see this is that God himself is a worker. He creates, he designs, he molds, he engineers, he brings into existence uh, the, the universe. And he describes that process of doing that as his work. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work. What was the work? His work was creating the universe. He had been doing so. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating uh, that he had done. Now, the word for work here is just the common Hebrew word for labor. Uh, just menial labor. And that's, that's an amazing thing to think that the deity, the God who created the universe would work. Most religions, uh, most creation stories never have God's work. That, that's beneath them. That's menial. Gods don't work. They're, they're above work. But, but the God of the Bible, he works. In fact, chapter one, verse, or chapter two, verse seven, when he's creating humankind says this, he says, then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And you get this picture of God playing around in the mud, creating out of dust, Adam. Tim Keller says, our God is a God with dirt under his fingernails. God works and God enjoys his work. And what that does is it dignifies all work. Work is not an evil. Work is a good and all work is good because the God we serve himself works. And we're created in his image, right? Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 says this. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, this word rule simply means to reign, and, and it's kingly language. And, and what God is saying here is that you and I, humankind, are co-regents with God. And God rules his world, but he does it through us. That's our responsibility to rule. And the word for subdue is kibosh, and it, it, it means to wrestle with the earth, uh, to wrestle with the earth, to bring about, in this case, shalom. Or shalom means peace, but it really is a word that describes human flourishing. And it's this idea that God creates man in his image and he gives him a job. 
to, to, to rule the world and to wrestle with the world, the thing that he's created to bring about human flourishing. You see it even more in, in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. He's saying in paradise, there's work. And this is an amazing thing because you would think if God created this garden that he created it perfectly, that it wouldn't need anything. And God does create it and he says it's good, but it's not developed. In other words, there's seed, but those seeds have to be planted. The plants have to be cultivated. There's work to do in the garden to make the garden what it was intended to be and that work falls to us. Now realize that the garden... Uh, real, but is also a metaphor for human society. And what God is saying here is human beings have a responsibility for taking the world that is good and cultivating in it all of society, creating culture, creating art, creating business, creating literature, creating institutions and medicine and all the things involved is part of the the creation mandate that is given to us. It's really interesting that if you go to Genesis 1, what starts as a garden, by the time you get to the end of Revelation, has become a city. How did it become a city? Because human beings went to work and they worked and tilled and, and cultivated the garden and created culture and created all these things that we enjoy, created beauty. Work is in the midst of the garden. So from the start, we are designed to work. There's this myth in churches, right, that says, you know, what's really important about you is who you are, not what you do. No, no, don't mishear me. Who you are is really, really important, okay? That's key. But so is what you do. What you do, what you do as work, how you filter into the created order, fit into the created order is absolutely crucial. It's part of the expression of the DNA that God has put in you in terms of his image. It's part of your very design. And you see this play out in life when people meet. What's the first thing they ask each other? Well, what do you do? You know, because we define part of ourselves by what we do and we should. We are designed that way. And that's why going through a period of employment is so devastating on someone because it attacks their very essence, their, their, their core being, because that's part of their design. You get around somebody who hates their work, right? They're, and if the, you hate your work, you're going to be absolutely miserable even if you make a ton of cash, right? Because what you're doing isn't fitting into the design of how God created you and gifted you and wired you. You see, folks, work is not a necessary evil. It was there from the beginning. It's something we have to do if we're going to be fully human and fully live out the image of God in us. Okay, so we're designed to work. Second, work has a purpose beyond making money. Now, um, I want to be clear here. There's nothing wrong with making money, all right? Uh, Getting a great return on investment, ROI, is awesome. Trying to maximize shareholders' profits is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, all right? But it's not the ultimate thing. 
And some economists will tell you, no, business exists to make money. That's it. It's all there is. And I would beg to differ because if business simply or work simply exists to make money, then in the end, it's going to be incredibly empty. Because if it's not tied to something bigger than simply making money, what have you done? Not much. There has to be a bigger purpose behind what we do. You say, wait, wait, Nick, you know, I think you're confusing the nonprofit world, you know, nonprofits to exist for the common good who do something bigger and greater than themselves, and for profit business, which exists to make money. And, and I would say, you know, that's, that's not true. For profits and nonprofits are the same, they just come about money in different ways, right? Nonprofits say, give me money so I can do a greater thing. For profits say, Invest your money. I'll give you a little return on your investment, but it's so I can then do the greater thing. If a business doesn't have a greater thing it's about, then in the end, it's going to be empty. We have to exist for something more than making money. You say, okay, well, if that's true, then, then what's the purpose of my work? What is the greater thing? If it's not just the weekend, if it's not just I work so I can live, what is the purpose of work? Well, I think from the creation story, there's two things you get that give us purpose in work. The first is service. The purpose of work is to serve the common good, to, to, to subdue the earth in such a way so that the community can flourish, be more than it was ever going to be by itself to bring about shalom not just for yourself but 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 for the community and you say well nick that's kind of idealistic if i really believe that then you know most of the jobs out there wouldn't have any purpose because they don't serve the common good and i would suggest to you that's not true most jobs do serve the common good you just have to connect the dots you say well how does a garbage trucker Serve the common good. What would life like be like if, if the, the, nobody picked up the garbage? You know? Well, how does a plumber serve the common good? What would life be like without plumbing? I mean, I, I like this quote by Lester DeCoster. He asked this question. He says, imagine that everyone quits working right now. What happens? Civilized life quickly melts away. Food vanishes from the shelves, gas dries up at the pump, streets are no longer patrolled, and fires extinguish themselves out. Communication and transportation services end, utilities go dead. Those who survive all are, all are, all are soon huddled around campfires, sleeping in caves, clothed in raw animal hides. The difference between a wilderness and culture is simple work. See, work does have a purpose much greater than itself. First, because it is to serve the common good. But second, has to do with the issue of design. See, God created us to work and in that process gifted each of us to fulfill a certain calling or assignment in terms of our work. So if we're to, to, to live out what God intends for us as a community and as individuals, we have to have an opportunity to do the thing he created us for, which is to work. 
1 Corinthians 7 is an interesting verse. Paul here is talking about the fact that when someone becomes a believer, they don't need to change uh, their work environment or their social status or their marital status just because they became a believer. You can, you can serve God in a sense where you are and please him without changing those things. But in a, in a sense, he's getting to the issue of work too. He says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them just as God has called them, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. And I'm fascinated by the fact that he uses this word assigned and called. Calling is a word that we usually connect with salvation. We're called to salvation. And the sign is a word that is usually connected to spiritual gifts. We're assigned certain spiritual gifts for the, the good of the body. He uses both those words assigned and called now in connection with to, to the state a person finds themselves in life, in, in other words, in their work. And he says, just, just like a pastor is called or, or a missionary is called, if you're a carpenter, you're called, you have a vocation, an assignment. God has wired you and gifted you to do that. You need to find out what that vocation is because God has plans for that, using that in your world. You're designed a certain way. And you're, if your life is going to flourish then you have to give yourself to that end. Look, folks, if all you're doing is working for the money, you are going to bankrupt your soul. See, good work doesn't always pay well. It's not even always high-skilled. But good work is good if it's what God has called you to do. Dorothy Sayers um, wrote an essay, this was back in the 40s, called Why Work? And it became kind of a famous essay. This was right after World War II. And she's talking about this, this idea of why we work and only working to make money. And she says this, she says, the modern doctrine of work, which has replaced the old biblical doctrine of work, is work is that which you do for a living. Work is that through which you make money so you can do what you really want to. That's kind of how the world thinks about it. You work so you can be free to not work. Kind of crazy notion. Then she goes on, what is happening is that nobody today works for the sake of the thing they do. The result of the work is only a byproduct of their real aim. The real aim in work is money or status. So doctors practice medicine not primarily to relieve suffering. But to make a living, the patient is something that happens along the way. Lawyers accept briefs, not because of their passion for justice, but because this is the profession that enables them to live. The reason why men found themselves so happy and satisfied in the army, right, this, right after World War II, she's talking about guys who were in the army, why they found themselves so happy and satisfied in the army was that for so many of them, for the very first time in their lives, they were doing something not for the sake of the pay, which was miserable, but for the sake of getting something done that really needed doing. She's saying when you can see an intrinsic value in the work itself and give yourself to that, you do the work because it's good work, not simply so it gives you a paycheck. There's something incredibly satisfying in fulfilling that because at that moment, you're fulfilling the design which God put in you, in your soul, in the heart of who you are.
Okay? So work has a purpose beyond making money. Third, there is no division between the secular and the sacred. Um, We say that in church, but a lot of times we act in a very subtle way that communicates just the opposite. It's as if we have this notion that if you really want to live a significant life, then you need, well, if you're really committed to be a missionary, and if you're not quite that committed, then you can be a pastor and, you know, then maybe work for a nonprofit. If you like, you know, if you want your work to really count. And, and I see this happen all the time. I see businessmen who kind of cash out. They build this business up make it into something grand, and then they sell it because they think in their mind, okay, I've I've accomplished success, but now I want to give myself to significance. And I've heard that phrase. And I want to say to those people, don't you know that success and significance can go together? Obviously, if you build a business, you're a good businessman. Don't think you have to give up business and go do ministry to find significance because you're going to be lousy at ministry, just like I'd be lousy at business. Do what you're good at. If you're good at making money, make money. Nothing wrong with that. But find not only success, but your significance in your success because you're doing something connected to the bigger purpose of helping the common good. See, it's a change in their thinking because if they see it tied to something bigger than themselves and if they realize that they're creating jobs which allow people to fill their calling and their design and that's awesome, then they can find significance in the success and they don't have to sell and cash out so they can go, go do something that they're going to be bad at. They don't have to do that. You see, but it reinforces this notion that there's, there's a separation. There's this secular stuff where I can get success in business and make stuff and be employed and work, but that's really not significant. It's only the spiritual stuff that is really significant. And that's just not true. Now, now, we think that way for two reasons. One is historical and one is theological. The historical reason goes back to the medieval period when the, the church wa- was the most powerful force in the culture and kind of saw itself as the kingdom of God. And in their notion, they thought, hey, since we're kind of the kingdom, if you want to have significant work, then what you have to do is work for the church. So you need to either become a monk or a priest or a nun. Because any work outside the church is just secondary, kind of menial. It just doesn't have the the significance of uh, the spiritual side of life. Now, what's fascinating, when Luther came on the scene in the Protestant Reformation, they, they, they actually called this working for a church the spiritual estate, right? You were part of this spiritual estate. When Luther came on the scene, he went after this notion of the spiritual estate, and he began to argue, wait, wait a second, just like a priest is called or a nun is called or a monk is called to their vocation, so is a brickmaker, and so is a baker, and so is a candle maker. I mean, they're all called. God has assigned them positions and their position is just as important as the priest and the monk and the nun because they're doing the thing that God called them. And God doesn't see a distinction between that which is spiritual and that which is secular. To him, it's all life. All life. The second reason we, 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 we see this 
separation between the sacred and the secular has to do with theology, and it's what I call lifeboat theology. It's like we see the world as the Titanic, right? And the Titanic was created good, and it's going along, and it hits the iceberg of sin, right? And it's mortally damaged. It's doomed. So the Titanic, the world is going to sink. So the only thing left to do is to get into the lifeboats and get as many people in the lifeboats as you can with you so that you can escape the destruction that's coming to the world. You kind of escape to heaven. Now we cut our teeth on that kind of theology. The problem is it's not true. The world's damaged and it needs to be renewed and remade. But it, the world is not annihilated. It's not completely destroyed. Romans 8 says that the creation is groaning waiting to be renewed when the sons of God are revealed. In other words, when Christ comes back and people are resurrected, not only are people resurrected, but the creation is resurrected. Think about people who are resurrected. There's a continuity between who they are before they're resurrected and who they are after they're resurrected. You can still see them and recognize them, touch them, and they're still material. They're they're different, but in some ways they're the same. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And that applies not only to people, but he's the first fruits of the resurrected creation as well. So the creation in Revelation chapter 21, we get a a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Those are remade. But it's not as if they were destroyed and now completely new. In fact, there's two words for new in the Greek one is neos and the other is kainos. Neos means something completely new, uh, new creation. Kainos means remade, renewed. And the word in Revelation for the new heavens and new earth is that creation is remade. You say, well, what about Second Peter? It sounds there like the world is just destroyed by fire and everything disappears and is annihilated. Not true. If you read that more carefully, you discover that it's really an image of something being refined by fire and what's burnt up is evil and evil deeds. The world is judged and purged. But there's a continuity between this world and the next. Now think about that. Because if that's true... If the world's just destroyed and annihilated, then that means all the work you do outside the spiritual stuff is destroyed. And that renders the majority of your life irrelevant. Right? If it's just destroyed, why build a great business? Why do good plumbing? Why make great bricks? It's just destroyed in the end. But if there's a continuity between this world and the next, and if those things that are done according to God's purpose and to his honor and to his glory, and they somehow survive, there's this this connection with the world to come. If that's true, then suddenly everything you do takes on significance. Do the best plumbing you can do because it's going to last into eternity. I mean, make great bricks. Do it for the honor and the glory of God because then that has eternal significance. I believe in heaven we're going to read great literature, great books, not just Christian books, great books. We're going to see great art, not just Christian art, I mean great art because it's done 
in a way that reflects the reality and nature and truth and glory of God. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to come through the fire. You see, there is not a secular spiritual divide in life. We like to compartmentalize things. We like to put, you know, Bible study and church and ministry and all this in one category and then life, work, marriage, kids in the other. But, but you know, if you go in the Old Testament, there is no word for spiritual. No, because life is just life. It's all spiritual. I mean, I think it would be funny to go up to Jesus and ask Jesus, well, Jesus, how's your spiritual life? And I think he'd scratch his head. He said, what the heck are you talking about? Spiritual life. There's just life. And God integrates into all of life. Not just part of life. All of life. So that means that being a pastor is no more significant than being a teacher or a doctor or a garbage collector or a carpenter because all of them can work towards the common good. It's no better to preach a sermon than it is to sweep the street because both are bringing order out of chaos. And if you bring order out of chaos to the glory of God and his honor, it has purpose. Okay. Next. Fourth. There is to be a balance between work and rest. Um, Our culture has perpetrated a lie on us and the lie is this, that if you really want to enjoy life, the key to enjoying life is leisure. And if you can achieve leisure, then life will be grand. Right? So the dream becomes this. We want to become independently wealthy so we don't have to work because if we don't have to work, then we can engage in leisure. Or at least if we can't become independently wealthy, then what we want to do is accumulate enough so that we can retire early so that we can experience leisure. As if leisure was the goal of life. But it's not. We're not designed to liege. I don't think that's a word. Okay? We're not, we're not designed just for leisure. Rather than seeing work as a way to get leisure, what if we began to say leisure or rest as a way to renew our work? Look at what God says about this. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and earth were complete in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on, the, on it, he rested from all the work of creating what he had done. In this context, rest or leisure becomes significant because it's in the, in the context of the rhythm of work. And leisure and rest is not the goal. It's just a break in the rhythm so that you can renew your work with more vigor because we're designed to work. Well, what that means is we need to change our dreams. If your dream is to work enough so you don't have to work, chuck it. Because if you don't work, 
you're not doing the very thing you were designed for and it will create an emptiness in you that you can't fill unless you go back to work. Because we're designed. And when I say work, I'm not just talking about a job. I'm saying be productive, working towards shalom and the common good and making the world flourish. I have a friend, Brian. Actually was the best man in his wedding. This was 35 years ago. In the course of life, we just ended up going our own ways and lost touch. It's been 30 years. The other day, his wife, Sarah, got a hold of my email from our website and sent me an email and asked, hey, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? And eventually we decided, let's get together and kind of catch up for 30 years. And when I got together, I realized that Brian kind of had achieved the dream, right? He owned this business and the business was really successful. I mean, really, really successful. He sold it for millions of dollars, right? So he didn't have to work. So what did he do? He went out and bought a Porsche and started to play lots of golf. And he said, you know, Nick, I I found out you just can't go through life playing golf or fishing or hanging out. Got incredibly bored and incredibly empty. So he said, you know, I don't need to, didn't have to, but I, I went back to work. Why? Because he's designed to work. Now, most of us won't be independently wealthy, but you know what we set our goal for is to retire. Man, in our culture, that, that's the thing, right? We, we want to retire, and if we can retire early, that's awesome. I don't know where we got this notion, but it's not from the Bible. It's just not. There's no retirement in the Bible. Why? Because we're not resigned for leisure. We're designed to work, and there's this rhythm What retirement is, or should be at least, is new opportunity. It means now I can shift my focus. I don't have to be worried about making a living, but I can be productive in other ways. I need to find those places that I can give myself to be productive for the flourishing of the community that fulfill the design and calling God has on me. Folks, I think we need to start thinking... That, that retirement is not the goal. Working, in a sense, till you drop is. Uh, Ken Fleury uh, um, was a missionary, retired. Goes to Waterstone. He was telling me last week, oh, yeah, we're, we're headed back to Brazil. And he said, what do you mean, Ken? He says, well, you know, we're no, no longer missionaries, but what we do is we work save up money, and then we can go back to the field. And they go back to Brazil. So for the next three months, they're working in the slums of Brazil. And then after that, they're going to Mozambique to work with one of our missionaries in, in, in Mozambique. And as he's telling us, I'm thinking, you know, Ken, you've got, you've got this retirement thing figured out. It has absolutely nothing to do with leisure, but has everything to do with being productive. You can email me about that one. (laughs) Okay. Go through those four and you say, Nick, you know, you kind of have this pretty ideal notion of work, but that's not my experience. And the next principle is why it's not our experience all the time, because work is impacted by the fall. It's interesting if you go to Genesis chapter 3. 
these are the consequences of the fall. It's just, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you must not eat from, cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. I want you to notice something. Work is not cursed. The ground is cursed. And the ground being cursed makes work difficult. But work is never cursed. Work, work is part of the design from the start. Now, the ground will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat. So there's thorns and food. So, so there's a sense that he's saying, look, there will always be this frustration with work. It will always fall short of expectation. It will never measure up to what you want it to be. You'll never be satisfied in your work. I think I will never preach a perfect sermon. I will never make perfect decisions. Sin will always be corrupting somewhere in the midst of that. That's true for me. That's true for you. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a little short story called Leaf by Neagle. Neagle is this artist, and he lives in a, a world that doesn't appreciate art very much. And his vision is to, to, to paint a tree and behind it a forest, but he wants it to be a perfect tree. So he focuses in on trying to get a leaf just, just perfect, just right. And it just seems that he can never get that leaf just the, just the way he wants, you know, the shading, the light, and the play on the leaf. And not only that, he's always drawn away from his work by the mundane tasks of life. He has this neighbor, Parrish, and Parrish is this needy person who's always bugging him. He's lame, so he really does need help, and his, his wife is sickly, and, and Neagle... Nigel knows he's going on this long journey, so he's trying to get his work done. But Parrish keeps bugging him and finally goes out to help Parrish's wife. He catches cold, and he ends up going on this long journey. It's, it's death. But on the long journey, when he arrives, he arrives in the place, his place, where there's the tree and the forest and the leaf. And he goes, that's it. That's what I've been trying for this whole time. That's the way work is. We have this expectation, this desire, this vision of what it should be and how it could be and what we could accomplish and how we can change the world and the difference we can make. And we always fall just a, a bit short as we live in the midst of a fallen world. So there will always be frustration and drudgery and toil when it comes to work. There will be days when you get blisters and days when you need ibuprofen and your back hurts and days you say, I need a vacation. Because we work in the midst of a fallen world. One last principle and we'll end with this. All work is really to be a form of worship. It's interesting that dominant word used in the creation account for work is the Hebrew word ovadah, used in Genesis 2 to describe humans' work in the garden. Ovadah is kind of an interesting word. In Exodus chapter 1, ovadah is used to describe the, the backbreaking labor of the slaves as they made bricks for the pharaoh. In chapter 35, it's used to describe the work of the craftsmen who are working and creating the anort, uh parts of the tabernacle, the 
the craftsmen. In, in Second Chronicles chapter 4, it's used to describe the craftsmen who are making the fine linen that go on the robes of the priest. In Second Chronicles chapter 8, Solomon uses the word ovadah to describe the priests and the Levites leading the people in worship. You do a complete study of the word of Ovidah, and what you discover is sometimes Ovidah is used to describe work, and other times it's used to describe worship. And you begin to understand that one of the ways we worship God is through our work. When we do it to honor Him and for His glory, and we do it well with competence. It's an act of worship. I like what Eric Lindell's father said. <laughs> Eric is the chariot of fires runner. I, this is his missionary father. He says, you can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. Every act of work can become this act of worship. Let me leave you with uh, Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. If you work for the audience of one, your work becomes an act of worship. And if your work is an act of worship, then on Monday morning, you can say, thank God it's Monday. I have the chance to worship my God through my work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us (laughs) to think differently about our work, to see that we ultimately are working for you and that our work is part of the design you put in us that enables us to worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name.